Do you long to see your story on the big screen? If so, I have some good news. Every streaming platform is desperate for new content to give them the edge in the ongoing streaming wars. And traditional TV stations and movie companies, they're still around and just as prolific as ever. There's even radio and theater. But how do you take a 100,000-word novel, which if you read it as an audiobook would be maybe 12 hours long, how do you condense that into a two-hour movie or even a six-hour TV series? Is that even possible? Where do you begin? What do you do if you want to turn your book into a screenplay? We'll find out in this episode of Novel Marketing, the longest-running book marketing podcast in the world. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr., CEO of Author Media, and this is the show for writers who want to build their platform, sell more books, and make a living writing books worth talking about. And I will say, there's few things as good for the marketing of your book than a giant Hollywood marketing campaign for the movie based off of your book. <laughs> Typically, a book, even if it's decades old, will see a massive spike in sales ahead of the movie's launch. And we have a guest on the show today who's going to help us navigate this process of turning your novel into a screenplay. He's a best-selling author, so he knows the writing side of things. And he's also an international award-winning writer-director and a director of the UK Society of Authors. And he co-founded the first screenwriters workshop in the world and has helped hundreds of authors turn their novels into screenplays. Charles Harris, welcome to the Novel Marketing Podcast. Hi, Thomas. Thanks for having me. So my first question is, how is writing a screenplay different from writing a novel? I think the first thing is to look at the medium. It sounds like they're very similar things. You read a book, you imagine the film in your head, but there are massive differences and massive elephant traps in there because they work in very different ways. And one thing to think about is, Firstly, the relationship between the consumer, if you like, the reader or the audience and the medium itself. So with a book, you can sit down, you can stop, you can start, you can flick back, you can take your own pace. It's you and the book. It's a very solitary thing and it's very much under your control. With a movie, you're either in a darkened room or you're watching it on DVD or streaming. Either way, you've got a limited amount of control. You can go back and forward. It's far, far less than a book. You've also got a very different audience relationship. Movies need to go to a lot of people. TV, even the smallest TV audience, is probably vastly more than the vast majority of books. So you need an idea that's going to go wide. We were talking last time I was on about pitching. Your pitch has to be a very strong pitch, even for a low-budget independent movie or TV program or series. Yeah, for some comparison, every year a million books get published on Amazon, and there's only maybe 500 or so films made. <laughs> and that's assuming the pie of consumers is the same. I think more people watch movies than read books. And so you have to appeal to more people because of just plain math, <laughs> right? A book can be successful with an audience of 100,000 people, but a film with 100,000 ticket sales is not considered a successful film. Definitely not. And added to which, of course, is a sheer cost of production. Normally, they start around a million, three million dollars, and then upwards to 300 million. So someone has to invest a lot of confidence 
in your idea before we go any further at all. And for some comparison, $300 million is enough to build a power plant. That's 10,000 single-family homes. And so to invest that in a film, you need to know that you're going to get that money back because you're paying interest on that loan for that money. And so you need to know that this story will appeal to a lot of people, which is why filmmakers like to use books that have a preset audience, right? If a book has been successful, there's an assumption that a film based off that book will have a built-in audience. But that's not always the case. Sometimes a book that was only a moderate hit can, or even somewhat unknown can still be adapted into a, a popular film. There's a lot of movies out there that you wouldn't even know were based off of a book because the book was not a particularly popular book. It's interesting to look at the Oscar adapted screenplay nominations. A lot of those you wouldn't think of as being adaptations. And in fact, over the years, half of the Oscar-winning movies have been adaptations. And again, as you say, a lot of time, you wouldn't even know it. Yeah, and then uh, back to differences between a screenplay and a novel. One of the differences I've noticed reading books and watching films is that in a uh, book, you can get into someone's head. So there's this depth of uh, hearing their thoughts, which you can't do well on a film. I mean, sure, you can put some voiceover, but audiences don't like that. And critics definitely don't like that. But it's not that a movie's less. It's just that a movie's different because a picture's worth a thousand words. And so you can put so much more detail visually on the screen. And so like a, a common change is uh, this character who's alone in a scene in the book thinking thoughts to themselves. In the film version of that scene, the character will have somebody there that they can talk to so that you can, as the audience, hear their thoughts. And this is a, a really common change and a real challenge. I remember the book Ender's Game. The author was really struggling with adapting Ender's Game to screen because Ender's Game takes place in Ender's head. It's a struggle of this 12-year-old becoming basically a uh, genocidal general <laughs> of, of an alien species and the, dealing with the moral implications of that. And it was difficult to adapt. And the way that they did it was by bringing Ender's friend, Bean, and making him a much more prominent character so that Ender could have somebody to talk to and work through what was going on inside his head in front of the camera. You've put your finger right on it. The key thing to understand is it's almost like turning a carpet upside down. All the bits that work in a book work differently and probably let the good things won't work and the bad things may actually work better. There's an old <laughs> adage in the film industry that the best novels make the worst adaptation screenplays and the worst novels make the best movies. And in fact, there's a true story that goes along with that, that the great Hollywood director Howard Hawks was at a cocktail party with Ernest Hemingway. And they were talking about exactly that. And Hemingway challenged him to make a movie of his worst book, which they decided was a novel called To Have and Have Not. It's a very, very good movie. It's similar to Casablanca. and I think it's better than Casablanca. Going back to what you were saying about inventing things, Hunger Games had exactly the same problem, that a lot of it is in her head. And when Katniss is thinking about how the games are being run, you can't have nonstop voiceover. You can't have her telling people what she's thinking. So they actually enlarged a character who was running the games and invented the whole area where the games are being run, the, the control center, that didn't exist in the book. 
and that's a great example of a really well done adaptation because the books are really well written and very popular. And one of the most interesting things about the books was the degradation of the point of view. So the books are written in present tense, first person narration. And Katniss, the main character, is slowly getting more PTSD throughout the story. And her interpretation of events is getting less and less reliable as she's losing her mind, as she's experiencing all of this trauma. And you as the reader are only seeing the world through her eyes. And after a while, you're not even really sure what's going on <laughs> in the third book because she's become such an unreliable narrator and it's handled so beautifully. And all of that is not in the film. They made the right decision to shift the POV from first person to film omniscient. You get to see what's going on in the room that she's not in to help give you a, a different perspective on the same events. The actual beat for beat events are pretty similar, but the difference is, is that you're seeing it from an omniscient point of view and you actually see what's really happening rather than Katniss's interpretation of what's happening. Films are external. There's a number of key elephant traps, and one of them is exactly that. There's no way you can do first person. And as you say, the best first persons are uh, unreliable because that's part of the fun of it. And you lose the authorial voice. And that's another crucial part of the problem because in a good book, the authorial voice is a lot of what holds you in there and gives you the sense of what's going on. You can film a beautiful desert landscape, but you don't get the beautiful words that have brought it to life in the book. So the whole thing shifts. The pressure really rests on the characters and the dialogue. If Good characters and good dialogue, if you can convey your story with that, the story will work. But if you're using a lot of the other tools in your tool belt to tell your story, it probably is harder to develop, which I guess leads into the next question. If you're looking at your novel or you're looking at all your novels, how do you know if it's a good novel to be adapted, right? Is the Hemingway technique of just picking your worst one really the, the best strategy? <laughs> it may well be. <laughs> I'm going to disagree with you a little bit because while characters are very important, the biggest and first question is whether your book's going to work is the through line. A film, even a fairly meandering film, will generally need a very, very strong through line, a motivated active plot yes pursued by an active motivated character that drives the film forward books do that to a certain extent and in fact there's a lot of pressure to do it more and more as more and more people read film type books on structure and use them for novels but still they're much more forgiving they have much more ability to bring other areas in to have a looser plot enriched by the voice, the other characters, the subplots, all the other things that are going on. You just can't do that in a movie. You've got to have that driving line going through. That would be my first question. Is it there or can it be discovered? I'll give you an example. I did an adaptation of a Portuguese trilogy of novels. It was called Port Wine. We called it Land of Stones. That's another thing. The titles often don't work so you know, in the same way. And when I analyzed it, I actually did a, a kind of massive, great, it was on paper, but it's a spreadsheet type analysis. And there were four main plots, each with a whole set of subplots attached, far too many main characters, uh, far too much going on. So I essentially had to roll up my sleeves, plunge my arm in, 
grab one of the plots and say, this is the one we're going to follow. I've been listening to your fascinating two podcasts on pruning, uh, the older one and the, and the more recent one. And it's very much, this is what it's about, massive pruning. And a, a good novel, or even a bad novel that will, will, will adapt well, can work if you can find that through line, cut everything else away, or invent maybe a through line that wasn't quite there before, and enhance it, sharpen it, so you've got what a, a good film or TV series needs. Yes, pruning to get to the core story. And I feel like pruning the plot is, I think, easier for authors to prune and like, here's the primary plot thread that needs to go through. I think the harder thing to prune is the characters, because these are my children. I love them all the same. And I want to just flood the story with characters. And this is a challenge, not just from a storytelling perspective, but also from a budgeting perspective. (laughs) So every good actor that you put on a film increases the budget of the film, which means it needs to be even more successful in order to break even. And I was reading the Chronicles of Narnia to my daughter. She's four years old, and she's very much into the Chronicles of Narnia. And it's interesting reading them now as I've been in the publishing industry, <laughs> because I see it with new eyes. And we're reading The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which Disney did not do a good job adapting it for film. And it was such a disaster that they stopped the Narnia movies. So they didn't do any Narnia movies after that. And they pruned in the wrong way. What I would have done if I would have adapted Narnia to film is I would have cut Edmund, because he's not actually needed for the plot. And Many of the times when you need that kind of modern English perspective, you have Eustace to give the English perspective of, well, in England, we do it this way. And if you need the kingly perspective of here's the noble path, you can put that dialogue in Caspian's mouth. <laughs> so very rarely does Edmund say anything that is a uniquely Edmund perspective. And I think Lewis kept him in because in one scene when after Eustace has uh, encountered Aslan. Edmund shares his story of, of being rescued by Aslan and they're able to commiserate. And other than that one conversation, which is an important conversation for the story, Edmund's not really needed. <laughs> you can tell that story perfectly well and cut Edmund altogether and would simplify every single scene. You've just really hit on something because it's one of the main reasons why it's so difficult to adapt a good and well-known book, which is how much freedom do you have to cut people like Edmund? I could imagine that a lot of fans would say, hang on, you can't <laughs> leave Edmund out. He's one of my favorite characters. Which is why it's so much easier to adapt something nobody knows or isn't, wasn't very good at in the, begin- <laughs> the beginning. Yeah, yeah. The other thing with characters is in a movie, you can get away with just about one to three main characters, unless you're doing a multi-stranded thing, which breaks the rules. And either way, you have very little time to establish them. And that's another key issue where you're pruning on the one hand, but you're also pruning in a different way because you're looking to say, how quickly can I get this person to know this character? Because you don't have 30, 40, 50 pages to squeeze your way in and get those nuances and a little bit of background, a little bit of story about their history. And you've got to hit the audience pretty quickly with what that person's like in, in, in a rounded form. And that is not easy. I think this is another reason why fewer characters is better, because the more characters you have, the more similar they're going to be to each other and the more time you need to explain the nuances. So classic example, you have King Arthur, you understand him, and then you have one of the knights of the round table. It's like, okay, we have Gawain or we have Galahad or we have Lancelot. But if you have Gawain and Galahad and Lancelot, 
Now you have to explain how those nights are different from each other. <laughs> and that's going to take time. And if you have a long book or a long series, you can really get into Gawain's nobility and Lancelot's duplicity and Galahad's purity. But if you only have five minutes to introduce that character across a, a two-hour film, you may not be able to really develop that character well. And by cutting that character... Don't see it as cutting the character, I think, because that's really painful. I see it as I'm giving my other characters more time to be more fully developed. The more characters I have, the less time there is to develop each character and the worse they're going to be. So it's better to have a few well-developed, well-rounded characters than a whole bunch of characters who only have one note because they don't have time to play more than one note. I like that way of putting it. Yes, to think of the positive. How, how can I give my characters more time? And it brings us back to something we said earlier about it's being exterior, that um, the camera lens is filming you. So you're filming Lancelot. And it's all very well saying he's noble, but how do we know that? Because we don't have the author sitting there telling us. This is where the show, don't tell comes from. And what show, don't tell fi fundamentally means is the only way I can find out he's noble is because he does something noble, which fundamentally comes down to my golden rule. I talk about goats as being my quadruped best friends when it comes to screenwriting and book writing to a certain extent as well. What is their goal? What is the obstacle? What is the action they take? That's the GOA. And by putting an obstacle in someone's way, you force them to reveal the kind of tactics they use. That's the T. In other words, someone who is noble will act in a noble way. And this is, I think, one of the, probably the two fundamental skills of being a really good writer is finding the right obstacle to put in the way of Lancelot to show his nobility through the way he acts or maybe show him f falling short this particular time and, and then realizing he needs to be more noble or whatever. As you say, you don't have a lot of time. Most screenplays are somewhere around 90 to 100 pages two three thousand words maybe <laughs> sounds rather scary when you think of your your 70 to ninety thousand that your novel was originally it was bad enough writing the cover blurb uh, and now we're saying tell the whole story in a few thousand words but each of those words has to count each of those words has to bring out some character and that's another skill that makes it a little bit easier to get all this stuff in is overlaying in other words every scene needs to do at least two or three things you don't get a chance to have a scene where it does only one thing. So ideally, your scene with Lancelot showing his nobility will also show two or other essential things. It may plant something important for the plot later. It may pay off something that happened earlier. Multiple layering is crucial with screenwriting. Scenes in movies and TV series rarely last more than about four pages at the most, often go down to as short as a quarter page. You know, two lines and you're out. And that's the brevity that, that has to be learned because you just don't have that requirement in a novel. You can have scenes that run on a long time. But in a movie, you'd be lucky to have two or three scenes that go much longer than that. You can have a couple. You, you big, big, big scenes that people will remember, hopefully. But the majority of scenes could well be three, four lines of dialogue and or a bit of an action and you move on.
sometimes you'll have a scene with no dialogue at all. It's all visual storytelling, especially in things targeted at children. My kids will be watching something on the screen and I'm listening from the other room and it's just music and the children giggling because <laughs> the a cat's trying to catch the mouse or whatever. So how does somebody write a scene like that? Is that done on the storyboard level or do you write the blocking of what's happening visually in a dialogue light scene? A good screenplay, whether it's animation or not, that is written in. Absolutely. It's written as description. It's a weird thing because it's one reason I, w- I moved to, to writing more novels because I was so enjoy writing the description, but no one ever saw it because that turns into film. So, yes, a good screenwriter will put in the description just as much as is necessary, but very little. It's, it's like screenplay writing is very much like writing haiku. Just a few words that do the job. Bonnie and Clyde, Bonnie Parker's standing in the window putting her lipstick on. She looks down, sees Clyde Barrow about to steal her car. Now, there's a lot that's gone on in there. He looks up, sees this extraordinarily attractive young woman. Not a word has been said yet. And yet so much action has taken place. In, and, and that's about the first quarter page of Bonnie and Clyde, which is well worth reading. Yeah, and this underlines another difference. When you're writing a book, you're in pretty good control over the final version of that book. Sure, if you're traditionally published, your publisher will have edits, but you get to approve those edits. The publisher gets to pick the title and the cover, but they ask your feedback. For a film, I was talking with one screenwriter. He's like, really? There's three films that are made. There's the film that I wrote. There's the film that's shot on the camera. That's a totally different movie. And then there's the movie that comes out of the editing bay, which is a third totally different movie, right? So you write, Bonnie looks at Clyde and, and you have that one sentence, but the director and the actors collaborate to add all of this richness to that that you don't really control. But then the editor gets a shot at that scene and picks the take that he wants and puts them in the order. And the editor can completely change a scene and sometimes totally save a film that's faltering and change whole plot points or ruin it, (laughs) depending on your perspective and how good the editor is. And as the writer, one of the things you should know you know, before you undergo this big process is the fact that you don't get to control that. The What gets recorded on camera, you're not the director. And what gets edited into the final film, you're not the editor. And so you just have to hope that a good director has been brought on the project and a good editor has been brought on the project. Everyone, to a certain extent, has to let go. And that's another thing. One of the best ways to learn how to do this is to read loads of scripts and watch DVDs, listen to the commentary tracks, because you can learn that they're like a film school on their own. But particularly, I'd say read scripts, because part of the answer to how you do that is just have a look at the scripts. Most people don't read scripts. I mean, if you think about it, you've written novels, you've probably read how many hundreds? I don't know. But you're trying to write a new movie, how many screenplays have you read? How can I read the screenplay for that film that I really like? You can buy them. Sometimes they're published. You can buy them as printed books. There are websites that will sell screenplays that are hot. There's also a great website called Drew's Scriptorama, which has links to just about every screenplay that's around for free that you can download, including some from TV. Mostly it's movie. Mostly it's the kind of genres that tend to be popular with people on the internet. So you're going to get a lot of certain genres like science fiction and, and fantasy and fewer of others, but it's still a very good source. I've got an adaptation workshop workbook 
which has got a lot of what we're talking about in it for people if they're interested. And there's a link to the Drew Scriptorama in that. Yeah, we'll ha- we'll have a link to your workbook and a link to all the all the best screenplay sources. But as people look at those screenplays, they'll see that what you were saying about five thousand words, ten thousand words, maybe fifteen thousand words for the whole story is all they have to work with. And I think a lot of people thought you misspoke when you said four thousand word screenplay, but you didn't. <laughs> that really is <laughs> potentially the length of the whole thing. And so I feel like most uh, films have kind of three characters that they spin around. They have the protagonist who's making the decisions to move the plot forward. The protagonist might be the hero, but it doesn't have to be the hero. Uh, Then you have the antagonist, which is the person who's putting obstacles in the way of the protagonist. Usually it's a person, but it could be nature or one of the other classic antagonists. And then you have what I've heard Hollywood people refer to as the relationship character, which is the person that the protagonist spends a lot of time talking to (laughs) so that you can know what's going on. And I feel like the relationship character is the most mysterious for an author because as an author, you have dozens of relationship characters potentially. So walk us through that third person, that relationship character. What kind of character is that? And how do you find which of your many characters in your novel to pick as your relationship character? What I'm looking for is a relationship line, first of all. In other words, that story will only show part of his character because there's parts of his character that will never appear while he's busy trying to fight for the future of his village. Maybe softer personal sides of his character. So my relationship line is there to help develop that other side of the character. And it may well be a romantic subplot, for example. It could be a buddy or you could have both. Picking the right relationship character, I think, is really tricky because you can tell a totally different story from the same novel just by swapping out the relationship character, the layers and the the context. And you may find that you have to write two or three different screenplays off of your novel, uh, at least uh, initial drafts, to see which relationship character is the right relationship character for the plot. Because the protagonist you're probably stuck with the protagonist. And the antagonist, you're probably stuck with that too because they're too critical for the plot. But the uh, relationship character, that that uh, emotional context of the story, uh, I feel like you have a lot more flexibility there. And you're not stuck with just one, right? Obi-Wan Kenobi is the relationship character initially. He's the mentor, which is a classic in fantasy and sci-fi for the mentor. But it eventually becomes Han Solo in the redemption of Han Solo, because Obi-Wan Kenobi doesn't have a lot of an arc, but Han Solo has a great arc from going from a scoundrel to becoming a hero. And in some ways, his arc is just as emotionally satisfying as Luke Skywalker's arc, which is kind of a straight line. (laughs) But Han Solo, him coming back the last moment in resolving his relationship with Luke Skywalker, and it's Han Solo who defeats Darth Vader, not Luke Skywalker, it makes that ending really emotionally satisfying. I always found Han Solo the better character, to be honest. I agree with you there. He's got a much better arc. It's interesting what you say about the mentor, because mentors are generally antagonists. They're a different kind of antagonist, but they're there basically opposing the hero and saying, you've got to do this. You've got to stand on one leg or you've got to clean the car or whatever it is. And they appear in all sorts of movies, not just action movies by any means. Anyone who's going to tell the protagonist what they should be doing. Uh, and they're really useful characters, but they they need to do it in an antagonistic way. There's you said about one support character, but usually there's a 
at least two support characters, you'll usually have a support character for the main antagonist as well, so that he can or she can bounce ideas off and say, well, of course, now what we're going to do is we're going to destroy the entire village with napalm. Is that a good <laughs> idea? Well, we've, we've got enough napalm. Go and get me some more napalm, and so on. So it's useful to have those kind of characters, but they have to be developed. They have to be characters in their own right as well. They won't be as rounded, but they have to have a certain amount of complexity, a certain amount of contradiction, be interesting in themselves. And often I would say that the support characters are what really make the movie. As you say, you haven't got a choice of the hero, but the support characters can really bring them to life and well cast, well developed by the writer, can lift it away from cliche and make it much more interesting. And the support character needs to be the protagonist of his own story. His whole world can't revolve around just supporting the pro- the main protagonist. And I think that's a mistake that's easy to fall into. It's like, this character has to be a real person. They have to want real things. And this is why Han Solo works really well, because he has a clear desire, right? He's got creditors on his tail. How was he introduced? A, a brilliant introduction of him as a character, right? Somebody's coming, demanding money from him. He doesn't have the money, and so he shoots him. <laughs> At least in the original version of the film. And why the changes to that scene in later versions of the movie were so controversial, because Han Solo starts off as a bad, murdering villain, <laughs> effectively. And that's his starting point, right? So over, under, through, how does he handle the problem? He's the kind of person who will run if he can, but if he can't, he's just going to kill somebody and he's going to keep himself alive because him being number one, I'm the most important thing in my world. That's his primary value. So you're introduced to him in that way, and he wants something. And at first, what he wants is aligned with what the core protagonist wants. Han Solo needs money. Luke Skywalker and Obi-Wan Kenobi have money, and so he's, he takes the job. But eventually, what they want diverge, and Han Solo has his own arc. And I feel like that's a sign of a good supporting character is that they have their own arc, but not one that steals from the protagonist, because I feel like that's the... So there's like this bowling lane, right? And on one side, you have a a supporting character who has no arc, and it's just all about the protagonist. And then the other side of the bowling lane is a supporting character who steals the show, (laughs) who's more interesting, or gets too much screen time, and after a while, you don't know who the protagonist is, and it it muddies the story. So we have just scratched the surface of screenwriting. There are so many critical concepts and terms like acts, beats, aerial shots, angles, interior versus exterior, continuous, cut to, fade, and many more. And this uh, art, this science, this craft, this profession of screenwriting isn't something that you can learn listening to a single podcast. And I think a really important thing to know is that just because you're a novelist, that doesn't mean that you are a skilled screenwriter. You're going to have to study this profession if you want to get good at it. You have an advantage in that some of the skills that you learned as an author will help you be a good screenwriter, but some of the things will need to change and there are new skills that you're going to have to develop. So I know you have training for authors that goes into way more detail. (laughs) I'm like, okay, now let's write a screenplay. I've got a book called Complete Screenwriting Course, which will take you from beginning to end, essentially from a first idea right the way through to selling. And I've got some free material on my website, which I'm very happy for people to look at on my blog, which is www.charles-harris.co.uk. And I've got a workbook on adaptation for free. All you have to do is join my mailing list, which I 
send out roughly once a month articles on books and movies and reviews. And you can unsubscribe at any time or to check that sometime or other. We'll have a link to the correct source to get that guide and to get on Charles Harris's email list. But I, I really do want to recommend this book, The Complete Screenwriting Course. This book is 20 bucks for 350 pages that will walk you through exactly what you need to know to write a screenplay. You can get the ebook for $5. There's no better investment that you can make in your career than buying books that teach you how to do the thing. <laughs> because if you want to be a writer, you need to be a reader. And learning the easy way from somebody who lays it out page by page is just fantastic. And so we'll have an affiliate link to get this book. Go buy it. If you want to write a screenplay, don't write a screenplay. Read a book on how to write a screenplay and then write a screenplay. <laughs> It'll be so much easier. I also really encourage you to read screenplays like we talked about earlier. I think that that's really important because the look of a screenplay is different. The structure of it is different in a lot of fiddly ways that after you read two or three screenplays, you'll get a sense for what they should look like and how they should be laid out and how you do your scenes and, and how you structure them and how you incorporate the dialogue. So read some screenplays, read this book on screenplays and give it a shot. And I'll say, maybe your book never gets developed into a film, but there are other things you can do with that screenplay. And one is you could turn it into a podcast, right? Get some actors from your local community college acting program or your local improv troupe, and you can record that 8,000-word screenplay into microphones. It's not very hard. It's not very expensive, and it can become a fantastic radio theater version of your book. I will say, as a kid, I liked VeggieTales. My kids, though, love the VeggieTales podcast, which is the VeggieTales experience, but just on audio. <laughs> and it's, you know, a fraction of the cost to produce, and my kids like it just as much, and I like it because they can get VeggieTales without getting screen time. So there's a lot of things you can do once you unlock this skill. And this book, The Complete Screenwriting Course, will really help you unlock that skill, whether it's for screen or for radio theater. Uh, Charles Harris, do you have any final tips or encouragement? If you've written a screenplay, even an early draft, get people to read it to you, whether you record it or not, you'll learn so much. If you've got any kind of theater troupe near you, think about writing for stage. Think about adapting your book for a stage. It's a whole different medium. It has its own requirements, but you will learn so much. Putting on even a small production, maybe with a couple of weeks rehearsal and a week's performance, is probably equivalent to, to making three, three feature films in terms of experience you'll get even listening to how audiences respond and, and maybe even adjusting things for the next night. You not just get experience, but get a track record, get sort of wider audience and maybe even sell more books. I can't think of much that will improve your writing or give you a new perspective on your writing, like doing a table read. So table read is where you have a table full of actors and everyone's got their part highlighted and they just read through the script and you get to hear your words in someone else's mouth and you're like, no, it shouldn't sound like that. <laughs> so you're taking notes furiously and then suddenly that next version after you hear the table read gets a lot better and it gives you a really good perspective as people are interpreting your words. It gives you a sense of what might show up on stage or on screen or on the radio. Absolutely. And I mean, I found, in fact, what normally is followed by people having, doing hopefully constructive criticism, but you don't need it. By, that, by the time you've read it through, you know all the bits that work and don't work. 
and what what the the best things the actors can do is pick you back up on the floor and say yes it will be better don't worry about it and those bits and that that bit really i really like that bit that, that was a good part there well said charles harris thank you so much for joining us on the novel marketing podcast and again if you want to find his websites or links to anything we talked about today go to authormedia.com our featured patron today is bd lawrence author of the coyote and the one-armed man can the one-armed detective rescue the young girl and discover who wants him dead before the assailant succeeds? The Coyote and the One-Armed Man is an action-packed second book in the One-Armed Detective series. If you like suspense and mystery combined with a high-stakes mission into a foreign country, then you'll love B.D. Lawrence's thrilling private detective novel. B.D. Lawrence, thank you so much for being a patron of the Novel Marketing Podcast. Thank you for your support that helps keep this show on the air. I really really appreciate it. Uh, the Novel Marketing Podcast is a production of Author Media. Our guest today was Charles Harris. Our producer is Laurie Christine. The audio engineering is by William Umstadt. The blog version is crafted by Shauna Lettler, and you can find that blog version of this episode at authormedia.com slash 402. I'm Thomas Umstadt Jr. saying thank you for listening and live long and prosper.